Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychotherapist, facilitator, and author, Carolyn Hauser. Hello, Carolyn, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Today, we are going to be talking about blissful marriages. And for those that don't know, Carolyn Hauser is a German-trained naturopathic doctor, humanistic psychotherapist, and family constellations facilitator. She is the author of the award-winning book, Blossom, Your Seven Steps to Sexual Healing, and she is the creator of the Pleasure IQ and Blissful Marriage Method. Carolyn also hosts her own podcast on how to make love last. A popular speaker and podcast guest, Carolyn is an internationally recognized teacher on the subjects of spirituality, relationships, emotional healing, and bonding-based lovemaking. How are you today, Carolyn? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that you're here too, and I'm so excited for our topic for today. And I'd love to hear a bit about your own path. It's a fascinating one because I was reading at one point in your 30s, you felt that you had hit rock bottom and even had a near-death experience. So tell us about the path of where you were and what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, well, my, my journey really started out with a memory that I still have of being in heaven and God or source coming to us. And it was like a scene like you would imagine in a kindergarten where everybody sat on little tables and we were just minding our business. And God came and said, well, we have trouble on earth. Men and women don't get along. Who wants to help? And my hand just raised itself without even (laughs) thinking. (laughs) You know, it sounds a little out there, but essentially that gave me a ticket um, into my my parents' um, house and uh, family. Okay. um, so this is before, this is basically before, before you were born. Yeah, before before you were born. <laughs> so that's how it all, that's where it started for this life. And then I had a pretty good childhood, but my, both my parents, both my parents' parents, so my grandparents and my great grandparents grew up during the World War II and I'm from Germany and they were Germans in what back then was Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia and Croatia. And they were heavily persecuted. So there was a lot of trauma from World War II in, in my in my family history. My parents were born just a little bit after the war. And, um, you know, it would make sense that if you come to Earth wanting to help people with relationships, that you would have to go through all kinds of trouble with relationships. And my, my first struggle came with just my relationship with myself. I had tremendous struggle just, you know, being able to be okay with myself, kind of the first half of my life. And then, as you said, in my early 30s, I, I had already been a mom. I had um, one and a half year old and a two year old and was just doing dishes and diapers and felt very much like I had, a, I remembered my purpose and I was not doing anything to fulfill that purpose. And I was getting very, very frustrated. And um, one night, my husband at the time came home and he was super exhausted from, you know, working a 12 hour job every day. And I had just gotten to a point where I just had zero energy and could not. I couldn't take care of the kids anymore. And I tried to tell him and then said to him, I, you know, I can't do this anymore. And 
he wasn't meaning anything. He was just, you know, being his normal self and exhausted too. He said, you know, well, you wanted to be a mother. And when he said that somehow in my subconscious, that must have registered like a death sentence because in that moment, something in me just snapped and I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And my, I mean, my body physically collapsed. And I mean, it wasn't maybe funny to talk about it now, but it wasn't funny at the time. My kids were in the room with me. They were on top of my body. They were crying because they didn't, they were confused with, with, with what was going on. I was under the ceiling, basically. You know, I, I was hovering under the ceiling, looking down on my, on my body, and nothing, nothing made me want to come back. And it was a pretty scary moment, yeah, because I, you know, I love my kids very much, and they were still very little at the time. And then uh, something else happened. A, a voice said, well, Carolyn, your work isn't done here. And I was sent back into my body and had a very magical experience for an entire week of just being suspended in complete peacefulness. Um, I wasn't resisting anything. And I, I was experiencing life as a very musical as a musical thing, meaning that any time that I was starting to think some something negative or would start feeling something negative, the music in my head or in my surroundings would go out of tune and I just wouldn't go there. And so it gave, that week gave me an opportunity to see how much our state of being or our mind impacts our experience in terms of whether it's positive or negative. And then that experience ended abruptly after a week and I was plunked back into normal reality. <laughs> <laughs> And ever since, I've, you know, I've, I've been very diligent um, about researching and finding ways to help myself stay in that peaceful state of being and help other people get there. And especially in relationships, because we're so, you know, we're all so troubled, most of us. Yeah, that's in a nutshell. Okay. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And there's, there's so many directions I could take it. It's so fascinating. So you really feel like, you know, your purpose in this world is to help people raise their vibration, find happiness in them, help people love each other more. And I wouldn't mind getting into the intergenerational trauma piece, because I think that's really fascinating how you mentioned that your ancestors, I'll say, parents, grandparents, were yeah. persecuted during war. And this is something I find is really fascinating. You know, even like scientists will like stress a rat in a cage, and they'll find there's genetic differences in that rat that then get passed down to yeah. that rat's child. And that doesn't even get into the, of course, the nurture experience that if you are raised by traumatized people, then that kind of anxiety and challenges are going to also go into you. So tell us a little bit about what is that experience like? And for those that have experienced intergenerational trauma, what is the path out of it? How do we unpack this that could potentially be at a genetic level? Yeah. So in my own experience, um, I came across a modality called family constellation. So I struggled with eating disorders from 10 till I was 20 and nothing helped. And my mom finally um, found, found a methodology, family constellations, which traditionally it's done in a group setting and I went to a group work workshop like a weekend workshop at one experience and within several months the eating disorders just went away magically and and um so that was kind of like my beginning into even learning that you know I I was carrying something or I was connected to something that's not just me and um I've been involved with this work now for over 23 years so what I can say is that most of us, you know, we think we're just this this singular entity when we're not because we're really the sum total of everybody that's come before us. And most of our ancestors, they they want something better for us, right? And But most of us also out of like a blind love as children, we take on stuff and we, in a sense, 
the best way to describe it is imagine that you're part of a mobile, like the thing that you hang over a baby script with the different, you know, elements that just ideally in a family system, we all have our own space and we hang freely and we coexist and the mobile is in, in balance. But oftentimes through trauma, we get entangled with other people's fate or we take on, in my case, it was my grandmother's fate. I was, my soul was basically saying, well, my grandma, my grandmother was literally in an internment camp from when she was 10 till she was 20 and she was starved the entire time. Wow. So with me, with the eating disorders, my soul was basically trying to attempt to make it better by saying, hey, you know, I'll take on your suffering so that now at least you can be happy and free. And so we do this out of a blind love and we obviously don't do it consciously. All of this happens on the unconscious level. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, it's fascinating things that we would never think have an impact when when we when we do the constellation work the the root cause of an issue will come out you know whatever it is and even after me doing this for so long it's still fascinating it's never the same you know people could come from the same for the same issue they can't communicate or whatever and it has so many different reasons for so many different people and it's mostly based on what you know what what the ancestors have experienced and what is what's kind of like the this is how we live by subconsciously. There's codes that we live by subconsciously in our family. That's how it's done. You know, some families have a rule of never talking about things or, you know, whatever. Like we live by these um, unwritten rules and just think that's how everybody is. But it's really very um, much tied to our family and our family history. I love how you said that we are the sum total of everyone that comes before us. And it's very true. And I really also enjoy your image of the mobile, that we are all kind of coexisting in a very delicate balance. And you pull on one side and it affects the other side. And of course, this applies to our family and the people that raised us, because we have these patterns put in on us by those that were around us during our developing years. Yep. So I'd love to go back into something else that you said earlier that after your incredible experience of hearing the voice, getting in tune with your purpose, feeling like you're almost floating in a state of state of peace, that you are diligent about researching and finding ways to maintain that peaceful state of being. So I'd love to get a little bit into those ways that we can all maintain a peaceful state of being. So what have you found? Well, there's things that we can do on an individual level, and there's things that we can do as a practice as couples. And I'm specifically passionate about the practices that you know couples can do together because in my quest, I've come across a woman. Her name is Marnia Robinson, and she wrote a book called Cupid's Poison Arrow. And I really do believe that what she rediscovered and what she shared in the, in the book is really the key for a lot of us to have harmonious, um, blissful relationships and not fall into the trap that most of us that don't know this fall into where we, you know, our relationships start out great. And then over time, they kind of go stale or deteriorate or go sour or kind of just get boring. And, you know, that's what we're all dreading. And what Marnia found is that the reason why that's happening is because it's biologically, we actually have two programs for lovemaking, one that's connected to procreation. So there, we have a program, a subconscious survival program that's connected to procreation. And that's normally how we make love because we don't know anything else. And then there's a second program that's not connected to procreation. It is also a survival co- um, program. So it's also a very deeply ingrained subconscious program. It has to do with bonding. And uh, when we know how to help our brain or our neurochemistry transition from the procreation-based sex, so to speak, into the bonding-based, 
we can actually avoid falling into things going stale or getting bored with each other. And we can stay um, in love and with honeymoon feelings that just basically are self-generating. And so that's a big part of, you know, when you're in a relationship, I do believe that people come together for a purpose and that you can help each other. And while there are things that you can do for yourself, you know, this, this couple's practice, I think, is, is just super powerful. So what I'm hearing from you is that we have basically two programs related to our sexuality. One is for survival, procreation. The other one is for bonding. And what I heard from you is that most of the time, almost unconsciously, we're in that first program. Yeah, because we don't know anything else. You know? And also nature was very clever, right? It connected um, the survival of the species to orgasm, which is, is a highly pleasurable event in our brain, so to speak. You know, if we just look at it from like a neurochemistry aspect um it's a very strong hormonal cocktail that we um receive when we have an orgasm and so because we don't know the consequences of having too many orgasms and because we we think that connecting and having amazing sex has to do with having amazing and lots of orgasms we just don't know about this other thing which does not include orgasms it includes a different kind of a high but not one that's so explosive so to speak than an orgasm and when, when people hear me say that at first, they're like, oh, my God, what is the lady talking about? Are you crazy? <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, I was desperate enough at one point to, you know, try this other thing because my relationships were just falling apart left and right. And I was not wanting to go through one more heartbreak. So I was like, OK, I'm going to try this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. You know, evolution had, has almost like tricked us into falling in love with somebody else. And what I mean by that is when we see somebody from the opposite sex or the same sex, you know, for gay or lesbian, but we see somebody that we're attracted to and, and there's this thing in our head that says, you should probably have sex with that person. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> well, and then, they do trick us. They don't almost trick us. They literally do trick us if we don't pay attention. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then we do, you know, many relationships start out kind of physical and then that little chemical cocktail like slowly creates this little bond between you, which is why like a lot of people try to be friends with benefits, for example. Yeah. And then they just notice, oh, no, I'm getting attached. Oh, no, I think I'm falling in love with this person. So you have created this thing that you call bonding-based lovemaking, which is that second program. And before we get into that, I'd love to just kind of toss all these terms at you because you did have this video I saw around <laughs> ways to have um, sex without intercourse. And so we have this idea of sex, we have this idea of intercourse, we have this idea of making love, and then we have this final idea of bonding-based lovemaking. So let's talk about those first two, because I think for many people, sex and intercourse is the same. And what does it mean to have sex without intercourse? Yeah, so just just to clarify, bonding-based lovemaking does include in the intercourse. It's just a very different way, and we'll get there. But in order for when when we're used to having orgasms, it is really um, and we want to move into this other into the bonding-based program. It's good to kind of lay off having intercourse for a little while because we're we're very addicted to the dopamine that we get from the orgasm. And you would, you could, you know, you would think, okay, I can do this by myself and I can just go cold turkey. Well, that doesn't work so well. But if we then learn to basically make love without intercourse, without triggering the dopamine, there is ways and they have to do with using bonding cues. So the same things 
that a mother and a child would do it to, I mean, they don't do it consciously, but just generally like eye contact, skin to skin contact, breathing together, touch with comfort instead of, so normally when we, when we have sex, we generally touch the other person to turn the other person on so that we can have sex consciously or unconsciously. But generally the touch is perceived as somebody wanting something from us or some, you know, it's usually touch that's more hungry or more grabby or just feels more like somebody wants something from us than our focus being on just giving loving energy to the other person. Now in the, in the brain, in the subconscious, loving, comforting touch is perceived as safe. So when we can make love in a way where we focus on intentionally giving love through our hands, through our kisses, and so forth. So it's not necessarily about the technique so much. It's more about our intention and where we come from. Then our brain goes into a different gear, right? That's what actually helps our brain shift into the bonding uh, oxytocin gear. And then when the oxytocin starts flowing, uh, we start to relax and start give it, getting a different high. So the idea is to get away from the genital focus and the genital friction, which normally we perceive as like the most pleasurable thing and retrain our brain to find these bonding behaviors and finding giving and receiving comforting touch more pleasurable over time. It takes a little while because it's like with, with a diet or anything that you do right at first, it feels like a little boring and, and, and your brain wants, <laughs> you know, you, you want the other thing that you're the fat or the whatever it is that you're used to chocolate <laughs> that you're trying to get away from. Right. And it's kind of like the same from a brain chemistry standpoint that we're trying to do the same thing as getting off chocolate or getting off sugar or getting off anything that's uh, super stimulant in a sense. Yeah, what I'm hearing from you is we, is we want to move from focusing so much on desire and more towards connection. And mm-hmm. desire is based in the dopamine system of the brain. It's about wanting and thinking about what you want and what you need to do to get what you want yeah. to shifting to the connection part, which is that more oxytocin and what I'm hearing from you is that involves more giving than trying to just get what you want. Yeah, it also, um, oxytocin starts flowing when you're present to the pleasure in the moment. Dopamine starts flowing when you're trying to get somewhere, right, in anticipation. So, I love that. So oxytocin starts flowing when you are in the moment. Dopamine is what gets you somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or when you're anticipating, you know, somewhere else, you're not really there anymore. You're not there with your partner, you know. So is that essentially what bonding-based lovemaking is? Really cultivating that connection, giving, present moment connection? Yes. And it is, I mean, it is intercourse, but just in a very, very different way. And um, much more relaxed and much more gentle, which for most guys, when they're listening or when I explain this, or when they read the book for the first time, they're like, how is this going to work? Like you know, I'm supposed to make love to her and be completely relaxed. Like those two normally don't go together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting that people ask you, how's it going to work? Because I was wondering how you teach this because I'm like, you're not (laughs) in the room with them. (laughs) So so luckily, Marnia wrote a book that's very detailed and there's lots of research and lots of pointers in her story and other people's stories. So the the way that I guide people is by making them read the book. And Marnia has twenty one days of exchanges in the in the back of the book. And um, there's there's things I can teach people, like teaching them how to really deeply relax, and teaching them how to work with their own nervous system, teaching them how to come back into their body before they actually try to implement what what they're reading in the book. 
and then they, you know, they do the homework and they come back and kind of like they they do share, you know, how it went. And it mostly has to do with um, just helping them, gu- guiding them based on my own experience. People just have to go through trying it out and making mistakes and being courageous enough to like be total idiots in a sense or like, you know, like just you have to be willing to just do it in a sense and, and get your own experiences. And then I can help people based on the feedback that they're giving me. Plus, when when we work with them, we also help them. Uh, do energy work on the subconscious programs, which usually when people have trouble connecting or going deep, it's because there's trauma where, you know, connection wasn't safe for them as little children or in their ancestry, it wasn't safe. And so with the family constellation, we can remove those blocks so that people actually are able to allow themselves to, to have the time and, and, and learn to connect and, you know, have, have their nervous system relaxed enough so that the nervous system allows them to connect. So. I'm curious where bliss fits into this because we talked about desire more being about that dopamine hit, you know, getting that piece of chocolate, doing some drugs, <laughs> for example. Yeah. And we talked about connection being more about slow, slower touch, you know, even eye contact is a wonderful way to to deepen connection. And I'm curious where the bliss fits because I I haven't seen any research necessarily around like, oh, this system of the brain is associated with feelings of bliss or ecstasy. And you probably know we have this big idea in spirituality, the Satchitananda, that, you know, our inherent nature is bliss, which is found by tuning into that nature, settling the mind, and we shouldn't bother with trying to seek lasting uh, pleasure in the world because nothing lasts but instead find that lasting bliss inside of us so you do have this idea of the blissful marriage and i am curious yeah where does bliss fit into all of this yeah do do you do you have you read any of david hawkins stuff dr david hawkins and the scale of consciousness Uh, i don't think so He's no longer living, but he, he he spent a lot of time, and just for the listeners, David Hawkins was a scientist. He was a psychiatrist. He had a huge practice in New York, and he spent his life calibrating, measuring different vibrational states of being and different just different vibrational states. He, he has many books, and he basically came up with the scale of consciousness, which gives us an idea of feelings correlated to states of being and vibrational frequency measurements. So in the scale of consciousness, the measurement of 200 is a dividing line and it's when we experience a state of or the feeling of courage that's when a human being vibrates at 200 when we go higher love vibrates at 540 unconditional love at 524 joy at 550 i think and then peace at 600 700 is god consciousness so we dissolve into light like literally if we started vibrating at 700 we would dissolve into light mm-hmm. if we go below 200 we start feeling depressed anxious angry Shame and guilt are at the bottom of of these feelings. So in a lot of ways, what I help people do and what I teach them is ways that they can help themselves to get into the 500s and and then also removing trauma or negative imprints. You know, there's there's things that pull people down into shame and guilt or anger, uh, like past traumas that somebody like me or somebody who knows how to deal with energy and do uh, help people with removing stuff from their subconscious can help them externally to to be uplifted in a sense and so with the with the practice of bonding based love making what happens is that it lifts you up in a state of of being around the 500s and when you're there communication problems fall away because you are a different person when 
when you feel happy and like you said, you know, it, it does come from the inside, like this, this feeling of bliss comes from the inside and because you're energetically at a different state of being, you, you respond and you see your outside world very differently. And so, you know, bliss is like somewhere between 500 and 600. So in a sense, the, the task or the, what we can do as human beings is find ways to get ourselves vibrating between 500 and 600 so that we can experience those feelings. And real quick, is that brain waves you're talking about? No, it's basically our 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 cells, you know, the vibrational speed of our cells. Everything is energy. So even though we look like we're a human form and we are mass, we're still, you know, electrons and atoms and, you know, at the core we're energy. Einstein Einstein told us that. And if we were able to plug something into our cells, we could measure the frequency of our cells basically or our entire being. And it fluctuates, you know, depending on what's going on and what we eat and what we're exposed to. And so those things are super important. You know, that's kind of where it starts, physical. And then, yeah. So I love the progression that you mentioned. What I heard was in increasing frequency. It's courage, love, unconditional love, joy, peace, and then God consciousness. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So let's tie this into marriage, right? And um, and what it really means to have that blissful marriage. And you mentioned it briefly before about the, the common path that we all take of starting out really desiring and passionate and that passion just ebbs into into nothing at all. And why why does that happen? For example, why don't we just enter into a state of just deep, lasting, secure connection? So 13 um, according to statistics, 13% of couples do find that and they stay sexually active and they, they don't end up like roommates and they find their way to the bonding side of things naturally. The rest of us, we don't. And so in the procreation world, if we only engage in sex with orgasm, that's really meant to have babies, then we basically stay in that paradigm where our genes move push us forward and our genes are interested in us mating with its with as many people as possible so therefore when we're in the dopamine paradigm the dopamine gets activated by novel things right and so over time when we're together and not new anymore we don't get surges of dopamine anymore um and i know it's it sounds so like sad or like basic but it's basically literally just our genes rewarding us for um, finding novel experiences. And so we can either then, you know, kind of ignore that we're bored with each other and move into like a roommate zone and just be friends because of our biology, or hopefully, you know, learn this other thing where the, the, the attraction and the, the juiciness and the passion can totally come back just in a different way. But the, the boredom comes basically just because we're in the procreation program and our genes are pushing us to proliferate with other people. A sad sounds, you know. So it's so interesting that you mentioned 13% of couples do maintain this. And I'm curious, are these couples doing anything uh, specific, like anything that the other couples might want to think about introducing? Or is this more of like a, they're just energetically more aligned? Um, probably. And also, I think they just find a natural way. They somehow figure out that orgasms aren't so good for them. And they find a way of being physically intimate without having orgasms. 
that's so so the other thing i wanted to say is like when you're trying to get off of orgasms you have to have something else to replace it with and so cuddling and hugging and lots and lots of affectionate bonding behavior will make it so that you're not sexually frustrated actually you know but if you don't get that if you're just trying to not have sex you get very very frustrated obviously we all know where that goes you know and then we <laughs> then we have to find substitutes you know either you know by overworking or workouts or food or alcohol or you know yeah list just endless so earlier you mentioned like when the guys read you know read your book they're like oh no how am i gonna do this you know how am i supposed to delay or not have an orgasm and i'm thinking about the challenge that some women have around orgasming and when you say like get off of it it's like i'm not having any at all (laughs) yeah so I do, you know, I kind of wonder, we have this idea also in spirituality that you have to be somebody before you can become nobody. Like you have to have a solid sense of like who you are in order to like drop into what it means to be without it. So I am kind of curious for the women, do you do, do you do want to come from a place of like, okay, you can have orgasms, you're in touch with your body, you have a partner who knows your body, yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, start to think about getting off of it. Because if I rarely experience an orgasm, I wouldn't don't know if I would like somebody telling me that I don't need to have it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've come across women like that. And I, you know, I tell them like, you're lucky because your brain is actually not hooked onto the dopamine. And, yeah. uh, you know, some of them I can get through to some of them I can't, you know, to some of them, they have to have their experiences of, you know, having orgasms and maybe seeing things fall apart. I've been there often enough and I, I've seen, I have a very clear picture of what I am like when I have an orgasm and my, what my life's like when I have an orgasm and what my life's like when I don't, when I'm not, not being single, obviously, like really having the practice also. And it's the difference between night and day. So part of what happens when we have, when we have the dopamine surge, it's literally like snorting cocaine or heroin. So it gives us a tremendous high, but then unfortunately for two weeks, all our dopamine levels drop and we feel very depressed and it shifts our perception of the world and, and our partner. And so, you know, if we were totally in love before and saw only the good things then within like minutes, all of a sudden we start just seeing all the bad things and it's a, you know, it's a very vicious cycle and doesn't feel good at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, like kind of the first step, right? So somebody sees the title of this podcast, it's Blissful Marriage. And they're like, wow, if that was, what a dream that would be. I'm with, you know, my partner is a roommate. We get along well, we take care of the kids, but there isn't that excitement that we once had. You know, what is just like the, a relatively easy, immediate first step that, you know, you think might produce the best results? Um, I do have a free training that kind of gives gets, gets a little bit more in depth on my website. So I would recommend for people to watch that, you know, as a first step. And then maybe go to some of the YouTubes that I have because, you know, there's, I mean, you and I can talk about this all day long, but it's it's literally learning the practice. And then obviously also getting the Marnia's book, Cupid's Poison Arrow, because she has all the data why we should be doing. She spent 16 years researching and putting that book together, finding evidence on why, you know, why we should do this bonding-based lovemaking instead of the procreation-based one if we want to feel amazing and have long-lasting love. So you don't want to give us a little taste? What's in the video <laughs> of training? Well, you can start by giving each other tw- hugs that are longer than 20 seconds. So when we hug, like really let ourselves, you know, be there, be in the present moment with the hug and feel the other person longer than 20 seconds, the oxytocin starts flowing. So you could start doing that, you know, once or twice a day or a lot. Like that's a good start. 
That is a wonderful start. That is a recommendation I heard, I've heard many times where after a long day of work, when both of you are home or like the first, you know, one person's already home, the other person walks in the door, no matter what you're doing, greet each other, hold each other for 30 seconds, and then you can return to, you know, whatever you are doing, but just how tremendous of an effect that that can have. Yeah. And I mean, in our life, you know, we spend at least a half an hour in the mornings and an hour in the evenings connecting generally like one or two times during the week where we, you know, have like two or three hours during the day where we're not just having to get up or tired because it's end, at the end. And that's part of the, pra- it's a practice, right? It's, it's like building a muscle. If you, if you want to have a strong back, you don't just go to the gym one day a week, right? You do it every day. You don't just stop sometime. You, you keep doing it because it's good for you. And it's the same with this bonding based lovemaking. It's a practice. It's a daily practice of connecting really. And that's, keeps you strong and makes you strong and makes it so it feels really good. I love both your emphasis on the far out God, God consciousness and also the just real world data and neuroscience behind it. Mentioning how we want to give each other hugs longer than 20 seconds, an hour a day, half an hour in the mornings, an hour in the evenings can be really nice. And reminding our listeners that 13% of couples are able to remain sexually active and keep that passion alive. And I'm thinking all these things might be on a pleasure IQ test (laughs) because this is an idea that you have that you call the pleasure IQ, which I love. And I'm wondering what kind of other questions do you think there might be on the pleasure IQ test? Yeah, so a pleasure IQ is your level of ability to allow pleasure in all areas of life. So part of it is like how much time do you, you know, like if you look at your schedule, how much time do you spend playing? How much time do you spend working? How much time do you allow for self-care? How much, you know, it's kind of looking at the subconscious patterns and seeing if your subconscious is totally in survival and making you work hard, work hard and not allow any kind of pleasure because that's where we normally come from. And then to increase your level of ability, it's really a matter of reprogramming your subconscious so that in your subconscious, it's safe to have playtime and work time and still make the same amount of money or more money, you know, and get out of this paradigm of thinking you have to sacrifice yourself and you have to just work, 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 work. And that's, you know, to survive. We're, we're in a time where we don't have to do that anymore. Absolutely. So I'm curious about a common thing that happens in many long-term relationships around big desire discrepancies. And I'm almost imagining somebody in a partnership listening to the podcast, reading one of your books, and thinking, I really want to try this with my partner. And then the other one's like, no, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm okay with the amount of sex that we're having. Or I'm also okay with the way that we make love. What's the best way to navigate having desired discrepancies around not just frequency, but also what you're doing, how long you're doing it for, for example? Yeah, so most of the libido-related and sex drive-related stuff comes from being in the procreation-based program. Mostly it's the women that wanna, don't want to have sex anymore, and it's because it feels draining and, and they're exhausted, you know, to be frank. When I can get through them and tell them that this new way of lovemaking actually makes it so that they're going to feel nurtured and fulfilled because it's not him wanting something from you anymore, but you're literally learning, he's learning a way to make love to you where it feels really good and nurturing to you and you'll end up feeling replenished and recharged if you do it correctly. And I can get them interested enough and also realizing enough that, you know, if, I mean, for most people, if they don't realize that most people will realize that if there's a discrepancy and one partner isn't happy, that if they don't find something that will help them, that the, the 
you know, it will either be a very, very unhappy rest of their lives or they'll drift apart, you know, and have all compromises or, and it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Most women that are in that situation or men where they're like, I just don't, I don't have any sex drive anymore. They do get that the connection part, you know, and it's really interesting because once they actually start practicing and once they start having feelings come back in their body that they might have never felt, you know, they're like, oh my God, like, wow, I had no idea what I was like missing out on or, you know, like how confused, and how wrong I was about like what true pleasure and true connection really feels like. For a lot of people, it feels like a chore, right? And so that's why they don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, it's so true. You know, I'm imagining like after the end of a very long day, a married couple, you know, they've had a long day of work. They tried their best to put the kids to bed. They're tired. For, they're tired from that. And then, you know, one partner's like, so shall we? And you say, I'm, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I don't have, you know, any energy to put the effort into this activity. And I'm almost wondering the best time of day. <laughs> Or basically, you know, when you mentioned how you're not going to want to have sex if it feels like it's going to take effort and be draining and be more exhausted afterwards. But if you do it in such a way that you feel more energetic and better afterwards, then you're going to have that bigger incentive. So you mentioned how half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening is a really wonderful way to build connection. And is there, you know, a time of day or a framework or better times to have these conversations and try these new practices that really work for people. Yeah. I mean, for when people start working with me for the first few weeks, we really work on reorganizing their lives so that they can actually make being together a priority because generally, you know, connecting comes last when it's really the most important thing to keep you together. It has to do with changing things in the subconscious because the reason why we keep the connection last is because in our survival, you know, it's not been, it's not been programmed in us that in us, in order for us to survive, having ample time and being totally connected is the most important thing. It's been like work, 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 work and sacrifice. So we help couples do that. And then over it, it, it does take a little time because you do have to make changes. You know, you're going to have to maybe put away the remote control to the TV for a while or you know, <laughs> like just get creative with finding time. But we all have the same amount of time. And if I, you know, if we can find it and if we can make the time when we have a very full life and we have kids and dog and businesses to run and, you know, like if we can do it, anyone can do it. Right. So it's just a matter of trial and error and figuring out what you can move around in your schedule, what you can let go of, how you can maybe make money in an easier way. And so a lot of people, it's really a, a change in lifestyle and learning a different pace and really learning what's important to you and then creating a life that's more suitable to to you to you as a human being. That's so important. I love it that you said connection often comes last when it absolutely needs to come first. Yeah. And I feel that's a really lovely segue into my last and final question that I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Um, that we can absolutely have our fairy tale and it just has to do with learning this this other way of lovemaking. So the fairy tale isn't a fairy tale? No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Carolyn Hauser, for coming on to the show. And for our listeners that want to learn more about you and potentially work with you, how can they find you? Easiest way is just to go to my website. It's carolynhauser.com, C-A-R-O-L-I-N. H-A-U-S-E-R dot com and uh, same on Facebook. 
Wonderful. Thanks again, Carolyn, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons from today, particularly around how we have two programs for love and sex, one for survival and procreation, the other one for bonding and connection. And if you're looking for that blissful marriage, it means shifting towards that connecting, slow, loving, giving, and supportive and safe love. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Carolyn. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 